Good morning. In, uh, in recent years, movie producers from Pixar and Disney have intentionally and playfully placed what are called Easter eggs in many of their animated movies. Uh, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., The Lion King, Aladdin, many of the movies hidden in the background various times have other characters from other movies kind of placed in there. We call them Easter eggs. Kind of a, a creating a fun adventure for movie watchers to identify something hidden, an Easter egg. And if you can even think back to the Where's Waldo books, um, that was a similar idea of searching for Waldo somewhere in the large display of characters doing who knows what, but finding Waldo. Something hidden, fun and entertaining. Something that was hidden but is supposedly, hopefully revealed to you. And, and then when you see it, then it's clearly seen. Uh, usually when you find Waldo, if you go back to that same page later, you see it clearly. You, you know exactly where it was, but initially it was hidden. Now, hopefully we consider what we read and discuss in the Bible more than just fun and entertainment. Um, we seek things. We seek truth, holy truth from God, revealed to us in different times and different ways, but clearly wanting to see Christ and his will. And there's different stories in the Bible that we've heard multiple times. You know, Wes just referred to this being a common story we've heard. The creation story we've heard many times. Noah and the ark. Moses parting the Red Sea. Daniel in the lion's den. The birth of Jesus. Jesus' journey to the cross, Holy Week. And then Jesus' resurrection from the grave. I mean, all of those are stories prior to this road to Emmaus. And, and this story uh, with two disciples of Jesus is assumed by most to not be two disciples coming from the 12 or the remaining 11. You know, those 12, we, we knew their names. And, and we're, na we're naming Cleopas here. Um, verse 33, the comment is made that they returned to Jerusalem to the 11. So a bit of the assumption is they weren't part of that 11. They were walking from Jerusalem following the crucifixion of Jesus and they had questions, they had concerns. They had experienced some things but they didn't fully understand. So they were looking for revelation. And there's five parts of this story kind of listed uh, through the verses that I want to kind of look at in sequence as, as they occur. And I want to take a look at kind of the process of how the disciples began in a setting of not fully understanding, maybe a, a meaningless scenario, being confused with what they had expected from the Messiah. And Jesus worked with them and revealed and turned things around for them. 
So first of all, uh, with verse 16, it, is, it does say they were kept from recognizing him. And the Bible doesn't really tell us why. Uh, some of the conversation could be that Jesus looked a little bit different, having passed on to glory and then returned. Um, so he looked different from what they had noticed and knew have, of him prior. Um, I, I would still think that the mannerisms that Jesus would have had would still be the same. And I would think that if these would have been two disciples that have been following him and listening to him for two years, three years, whatever the time frame may have been, you've got to recognize him. But obviously not. They, they didn't recognize him. Uh, one consideration is that they didn't recognize him because they weren't really looking for him anymore. He had died. They had seen him die on the cross. And they didn't expect him to be up and around and joining them on a walk. Yeah, they had, they had heard you know, the story of the, from the women going to the tomb. But again, I, I'm not sure that they really bought into what that meant. What was their resurrection? That type of thing doesn't happen on a daily basis. Uh, in Barnes' notes, there, there's this comment about them. It said, their master had been crucified contrary to their expectation, contrary to their hopes. Their hopes were dashed. Their anticipation was, was disappointed. And they're now returning in sadness and a very naturally, you know, they naturally conversed in the way of the things that happened to Jerusalem. But they were confused. Things didn't happen the way that they anticipated. Um, and even verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I think it's also important to notice that in their description of Jesus in verse 19, they didn't use the word Messiah. Their description, they said, Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. So did they no longer think of, of uh, Jesus being the Messiah? They didn't list him as that. And had they missed the message of why Jesus had come to earth in the first place? Were they focused on an earthly kingdom? They were envisioning the overthrow of Rome, the redeeming here on earth. And, and as, as I kind of say that, I, I don't want to be too critical of them because sometimes I think we anticipate and expect Jesus to fit into our plans today also. And we expect Jesus to look like what we anticipate in our goals and our dreams in this world. And when that happens, I think we sometimes miss how and where we can join Jesus and we can recognize Jesus himself in ministry and in his timing. So there, there's a challenge with that. So I think they missed a bit of who he was, but I think we can do that sometimes too. Second thing I want to note is that Jesus asked in verse 19, so what, what things have happened? He asked him, so what, tell me about it. He had heard them in their confusion. He had walked with them, heard them conversing, and then he interjected himself into the conversation, and he knew that they were perplexed. 
So th this whole idea of a question takes me back to my student teaching years at Northwood. Uh, my supervising teacher, and this would be, boy, 37 years ago. Um, I still remember this. He, he basically had a rule that if you as a student had a question and there was something you didn't understand, you could raise your hand, he'd come, and his comment to you was, what is your question? Well, the common statement for students is, I don't understand. Okay, that's not a question. That's a statement. And if you are the teacher and you come up to somebody and they say, I don't understand, where do you start in your explanation? So that, that was part of why he, as a supervising teacher and as a teacher in the math class, wanted to encourage, okay, ask me a question. Because in asking that question, as a teacher, you start to understand what they do know. What is their understanding? Where are they in the process of knowing the material? And so that's what Jesus comes up. He says, okay, so what happened? Tell me about this. And, and that is so helpful because it allows Jesus to hear them. What do you understand? What is your belief? Where are you walking in your faith in this scenario? So he asked the question. And then based on their understanding, or in this case, their lack thereof, he knew the truth of where to start with the conversation. So that's what Jesus is looking to do. And, and the challenge that I would take from this is are we willing to ask people about their faith or lack thereof and then listen? I, I think many times that you know, we, we hear, you know, be prepared to give an answer, Pre you know, preach the word. Well, do we, when we go into that, do we understand the individual that we might be interacting with? Do we know what their belief is, where they are in their faith? And boy, that, that is so challenging to sometimes ask a question and then not be formalizing my statement as they talk. We need to listen. Jesus listened. Jesus is looking to listen to us. Be bold to give an answer but identify where individuals are. Now, the next part of that, the third part, is Jesus explained about the truth. And in this case, it was about himself, Jesus Christ the Messiah, in verse 27. So Jesus knew the truth. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth. And depending on the translation that you use, uh, the words in verse 25, where it says, how foolish you are, or, oh, oh, fools, that sounds incredibly harsh. But, but the Greek word that is used in that scenario is not an indictment uh, of contempt and wickedness on, them, on their part saying, oh, you are, you are fools. It's a softer tone. That word that is used there is more of identifying a weakness or a dullness of understanding. And it has to do more with a, a pleading to engage better, a pleading to understand. 
not a condemnation. So, you know, so don't, don't get hung up on that word, oh, fools. Please don't call anybody a fool. If they're desiring to know Christ, maybe it's a matter of pleading and inviting to know better. But Jesus was ready with a clear explanation. I believe we need to be there as well. But it was based on understanding and hearing their misunderstandings first. And so he told of himself from Moses and the prophets, and he explained about truth and life. Um, scholars believe that Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, may have been a part of what he uh, used. And I'm, I'm going to read this. So here's Isaiah 53 describing the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's talking about Jesus back in the old scripture. And I ran across a, a list kind of hinting at some additional ideas that Jesus likely would have pointed out in the scriptures, um, where the Messiah was identified as the blessing of Abraham to all nations the lion of the tribe of Judah, the voice from the burning bush, the Passover lamb, the prophet identified greater than Moses, the ultimate kingsman redeemer referred to in Ruth, the son of David, who was a king greater than David, the suffering savior identified in Psalm 22, the good shepherd in Psalm 23, the princely Messiah of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. All of those stories would have been part of what these two disciples knew but just needed to be reminded of and clarified of. Uh, of Jesus' use of Old Testament scriptures, George H. Morrison, a minister at Wellington Church in Glasgow, said these two things. He said, it's a sign to us that he is still the same. Though he has passed into the resurrection glory, that he still goes back to the old familiar scripture which he had learned beside his mother's knee. He also said this, the scripture was a familiar book to them. And what did our Lord do when he met with them? He took the book they had studied all their lives. He turned to the pages that they knew so well. He led them down by the old familiar texts. They just needed to hear it again, maybe in a new voice, in a new setting. Truth was already in place. It had been place, had not changed. But Jesus patiently led them through the story again, and he allowed for God's spirit to work in their minds, work in their hearts, for things to be refreshed. The fourth thing then, in verse 31, said their eyes were opened when he broke the bread. So there was revelation. They, they saw something. So as, as they had neared the village, they urged him strongly to stay. So it was near evening, night was falling, and they were being very hospitable. 
They didn't want this individual to be continuing to walk through the night. Who knows where he would have his place to stay. But based on their comment in verse 32, where they said, weren't our hearts burning? I think they were also wanting to hear more. More insight. More truth. More of Jesus' teaching. So they sat down to eat. And Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread. And he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. And, and one of the things that you might imagine is that breaking of the bread, if you go back to the Last Supper, you say, well, that process is something that they recognized. But these two disciples would not have been at the Last Supper. This would have been the first time that Jesus may have broken bread in that manner with them. And so it's not a reference to, oh, I remember that. It's a setting of Jesus breaking bread with them right now. And that's where I would say Jesus is willing to break bread with us right now. Not in a special ceremony. Not commemorating the Passover. Not the Last Supper as we look at it. Right now. Jesus broke bread within their humble homes. And they recognized him as the Savior. Not just a prophet, powerful in word and deed as the Messiah. And they understood more. Maybe not everything that they were going to eventually know more and more of as a leader or as a spirit led. But they understood more of Jesus' reason for coming to this earth. So what does it take for our eyes to be open to see Jesus in our presence? What does it take to open our eyes to see those hurting and the needs around us Maybe in the pew right next to you. Maybe two, two pews forward, two pews back. Within the youth group, within your Sunday school class, within your small group, a co-worker, family member, whatever it is. Are we willing to open our eyes and fellowship to see needs, to see opportunities to share Jesus right where we are. Not needing a special time or a moment, but right now. Are we willing and ready to nurture and encourage others with that same love of Christ? And it takes time. It takes time to grow the kingdom. It takes time to fellowship. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus was talking. Jesus was leading them through scripture but he was walking with these two disciples, spending time with them. So when we spend time with Jesus ourselves in Bible study and fellowship, we will see his truth. When we spend time with those in need, we'll see them. We'll value them. We'll see their needs better. As Jesus walked and he asked them the question, Tell me what you understand. He was able to see them better because they put it into words. Do we do that with each other? Will we spend time breaking bread with Jesus and with others? 
And finally, the last part I want to refer to would be this comment about our hearts were burning. And that would have been in verse 32. Um, I think we all like storytellers. Individuals that can tell a story, keep us spellbound, wanting to know, okay, what's the next part of the story? And, and I think these two disciples were listening as Jesus talked and walked with them, still not yet understanding everything, but knowing and anticipating, okay, what's, what's the next thing that he's going to refer to? What's the next scripture that he's going to connect? And then they were waiting for the next minute. What, what's next? And then what's the next minute? What, what, what's, I mean, they kept anticipating. Their hearts were burning for the next part of that story and that connection. Uh, Jessica Brody is a writer for Christianity.com website said this about Jesus as he was waiting and waited to reveal himself, didn't, didn't show himself immediately, but then how their hearts burned. She, she said this, many scholars believe that this parallels the discernment process for many of us. Sometimes when we cannot understand something, we gather information. Then it must settle within our hearts. Only when we have fully digested what we've learned, allowed it to sink in, does this truth come out? The men did not seem extraordinarily surprised when they finally realized it had been Jesus that whole time. As they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I think they knew something was different. It took a little time for their hearts and their heads to catch up with each other. But they finally did and they knew the truth completely. I think Jesus does that with us. And I think we need to do that with others. It takes time to know Jesus. It takes time to know one another in fellowship. So do we desire to know more about Jesus today than we did yesterday? Will we want to know more tomorrow? Spending time with him in the word, in fellowship with others, in prayer, that allows your heart to burn. That puts you in a setting where your heart may be ready to burn. If it's not burning now, put yourself in a setting where it will be ready to burn, to know more of him. But the thing is, God isn't a magic genie. And so promising that I go through X, Y, and Z, you know, do, do these three steps, and all of a sudden God's going to reveal himself, there's not a promise, because when I look at X, Y, and Z, and I expect this result, that's my agenda that I just placed on God. I think that can happen. But am I willing to seek tomorrow and the day after that? Because going halfway doesn't cut it. Jesus did not go halfway to the cross. And we are not called to go halfway to him. Jesus wants our whole heart. Commitment. And God also knows that that commitment, giving everything, is not easy and it's not automatic. That's why he promises to walk every step of the way with us. 
Um, Zach Williams released a new song just earlier this year called Heart of God. And there's a, a line in the song, it's a bridge that's referred to in there, that I think is a great reference here to about Jesus and his commitment to us as we sometimes walk confused and lost, similar to the two on the road to Emmaus. And here's the line. That he's... <laughs> He's not sitting there shaking his head, writing you off, leaving you lost. He's not sitting there shaking his head. He went to that cross. He went to that cross. Jesus did not leave the two disciples on the road to Emmaus lost. He walked with them. He provided understanding. He provided meaning where they didn't see the meaning. And God will not leave you lost. And Jesus does not regret going to the cross for you. He paid the price. Jeremiah 29, 11 makes this promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And I believe God has a plan for every one of us and for our congregation. And yeah, there's challenges. There are things that we need to overcome. There's things that we need to learn in the process. But I look back at what was missing with the disciples that we have here. Why did they not see it? Was it because their agenda was blocking some of that? And so the challenge is, will I be looking to follow my agenda or am I looking to follow God's agenda? And the challenge of that is not just that agenda, but the timing of that. Am I willing to allow God's timing and not be in a rush? Still be active, but not be in a rush. So as a church, as individuals, how committed are we to actually seeing Jesus and joining him where he needs work? We might not need to look very far. Again, I referred to earlier, within our pews, within our walls. But I know where the answers are. The answers come from his word, from fellowship, from encouragement. Jeremiah 29, 13. So this is just two verses past 29, 11, gives this promise. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So even when it may seem meaningless, keep seeking. Keep seeking God. Keep seeking to encourage those around you. Seeking to do his will, not ours. And in that process, I do believe our hearts will burn. If they're not already burning now, they're going to be burning for more of that fellowship, more of that time with Christ.